The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, if you have your Bibles or you have a phone, please feel free to not be on Facebook, but to open it to your version Bible app. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 1. And last week we... We kind of went from verse 3 to verse 18. Today, we're kind of going to go for 18 down to 30. And so what I'd love to do is just read this uh, passage um, for us, and then we will dig into what God uh, will have for us. Philippians 1. I'm going to go from uh, verse 18 again. It says, What then? Only in that every way, whether in pretense or in truth... Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Imagine with me that you were invited to go away on a weekend exploration, silent retreat. And the purpose of this retreat is that you are going to go away, you're going to go up into the mountainous views, you're going to be able to see all of God's creation. But while you're out there, you're kind of refocusing and resetting your life towards what you want your future to look like. And so you, you get your keys, you drive up, you get into the cabin. As you walk into the cabin, there sitting in the cabin is a journal and a pen. And you are to each day and throughout your days, go and just write the words, write the thoughts, write the things that are on your heart down in that journal as to what you believe you want for the end of your life. Where are you heading? What are the things that you think uh, are the most beautiful uh, part of your life? And then, and then you're, you're to paint that picture of what you have thought about. And of course, um, for Trish, they're pastels. Uh, for different ones, some of you don't know who Trish is, that's fine. Uh, and you are, you are basically going to paint the picture of what you think your ultimate life should look like. Question. What would be some of the words that you would have written down in your journal? 
what would your picture look like? What would be in that picture that you would paint? Who would be in the picture that you would paint? What location would that picture be? If I can show you what part of my picture would look like, uh, it would look something like this, uh, which is where I was just a few weeks ago in Tasmania, uh, where I was looking over these mountainous views surrounded by 99 acres of nothingness and eventually hanging out with some highland cows of which we got to brush and enjoy. Uh, for me, this would be a big... Now, for the sake of my family, I didn't put them in there. Don't, don't see that as, like oh, you just want... You love cows more than your children? No. But I didn't want to embarrass them because I embarrass them every week. So I thought I'd leave them off, okay? The next slide, I've got them. No, don't. Um, what would be your defining marks of life? Essentially, what we just read was what Paul would have written in his journal. And something along the lines of, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, is his definition of what it means to be fully alive. To truly live. And so as you read this passage, it's really all pointing to this particular definition. And here's the the important piece. Your definition of life determines your experience of it. Depending on what you think life is, where you think life is headed, is the filter through which you experience everything that you do in this world. And so Paul is in jail, two years in a jail in Caesarea, months on a boat to get to Rome, another two years in this prison, and he's had a lot of time to sit and think in his retreat. And he is writing to this church to say, church, this is life. Christ. And to die, more Christ. It's gain. It's profit. That The word there, gain, means rich wealth. And so Paul has been falsely accused and incarcerated, and yet for him... He is saying to these people who are Christians and live in Rome, do not make pleasure your life. Do not make career your life. Do not make comfort your life. Do not make beautiful mountainous experiences your life. Because all of those things are temporal and can be taken from you. Make Christ your life. For he is life. Isn't that a profound statement? Is that not challenging? For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. See, see, if Paul was in this church, he would be the weird Christian that were like, calm down, Paul. Don't be such a, a zealot for Jesus. Like, it's, like you've kind of got John the Baptist, doesn't eat a lot of food, pretty weird. And then you've got Paul, it's extreme. It's like, whoa. And so it should lead us to ask, well, how does someone like Paul in these conditions, how does he think like this? How to him is Christ so good? And I think there are a few things that we see in this passage that he knows about Christ, that he knows about God, that just make him love, treasure God in a way that I think 
he wants to invite the Philippian church and us to. First thing he wants us to see, and the thing that he knows, is he knows God's sovereign goodness. Okay? So, so verse 18 says, What then only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. So we saw that last week, that even though there are people who are sort of bagging him, they're talking bad about him and his, his imprisonment, he's like, ah, as long as they're preaching the true Jesus, I don't mind, I'm going to rejoice in that. But then at the end of 18, it says, yes, and I will rejoice. Why? For I know. Paul knows something that is absolutely powerful. And he says that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. But that with a full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What Paul is saying is, I know that God's got this. I know that God is sovereign. And we talk about God's sovereignty, it's a little bit hard for us who are, who are humans and we are temporal beings who live in time to reconcile a bunch of things with God's sovereignty. But what, what the Bible never does is the Bible never separates God's sovereignty from his goodness. In fact, if you read the New Testament, every single time the Bible speaks of God's sovereignty, it's always in this encouraging way to affirm and encourage those, trust his sovereignty, Why? Not just because he's a God that can do anything he wants and is all-powerful, but it is that he is that, that God and he's the good God. You see this in the Gospels where someone comes up to him and says, good teacher, and, and someone turns around and Jesus goes, well, who, who is good? In a Jewish concept, the only one that could be good is God. Goodness flows from God because God is good. And so God is sovereign, not just in an abstract, powerful sense, but in this real deep, personal sense. And Paul is saying, I know the sovereign goodness of God. And right now where I am on the outside looks bad. It looks threatening. I'm about to face Nero any day to find out whether I live or I die. But what you don't understand is that I'm actually not in Nero's hands. I'm in my Father's hands. And the safest place to be is in the presence, in the will, in the arms of God. Now, when we go through difficult times, our circumstances don't feel that that is true. Have you been through this? This doesn't feel like I'm in the arms of God at all. This feels like I'm in the arms of the government. This feels like I'm in the arms of circumstance. This feels like I'm in the arms of persecution. This doesn't feel like the arms of God. But Paul has certainty, not of what the future holds, but of the one who holds it. He wrote Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, what's interesting about that verse is we put it on mugs, we put it in little you know, picture frames, and we put it... That's beautiful, right? What Paul then goes, he anticipates in that particular passage when people are going, well, how do I know that God is good? Listen to what he goes on and says. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, what he does is, how do we know God is good in the present? 
Paul goes, because we know he's been good in the past and we know he's going to be good in the future. If God is over, if he is sovereignly good over all of eternity, you can know he is good in the present temporal time. God is good. And Paul goes, I am in the arms of my father and there is no better place to be. There is no safer place to be so I don't have to lose my peace. I have comfort for I know God has me. So he uses language of expectation, hope, full of courage. Eager expectation is a sense that someone's neck is leaning forward. It's like when you're driving a car and you can't see around the bend and you stretch forward and you look. He's he's bending his head to go, hey, no, God's got me. I'm seeing what God has. Hope is this certain confidence in the nature and character of God, that God will work everything together for his good. Hope in the Bible doesn't mean this like wishful thinking. Hope is that six-year-old kid on the night before their birthday and they cannot sleep because they know tomorrow is their birthday. That's Christian hope. It's like, I don't care what anything else is going on in the world. I cannot sleep because I'm so excited because I know what tomorrow is going to bring. I, I, I have certainty about tomorrow. That's what hope is. He is so filled with certainty. And then he says that he is fueled with courage to face whatever it is that God wills for his life. So here Paul is in this dire situation of being in jail, yet he is not a defeated victim. He is a defiant victor trusting in the sovereign goodness of God. Now imagine with me one of Paul's early Jewish friends who saw him going through all the rabbinical schools and saw his life previous to meeting Jesus and following Jesus comes and meets him in jail. If you follow Paul's life, before he is a Christian, he has everything that the culture would say is the definition of the good life. He is serving under a guy named Gamaliel, who's the highest ranking rabbi of their day. Right? Gamaliel, if you read the book of Acts, he trumps a whole lot of people at one point and says, hey, be very careful how you treat these Christians, because if, if they're of God, things could go bad for you. And, and the council will listen to Gamaliel. Paul is serving under him. When the first ever Christian martyr is stoned, his name is Stephen. The first thing we ever hear about Paul, his name was like officially Saul. Okay, there's kind of two names. God didn't change his name. One's just in the Greek language, one's in the Hebrew. Okay, so there's Saul, right? And so Saul is sitting there and he is watching over them, stone him. He's literally going, hey, I'll take your garments. Here, guys, come here. I'll hold your cloaks while you pick up the rocks and stone him. He is this powerful future influencer of their culture, and everybody is looking to him and going, he's the next guy. He is the big thing. So he has power, he has prestige, he has wealth. He's got everything culture would say you need. After following Jesus, it's like he loses all of that. And so his Jewish mate would come to him and be like, Paul, like, bro, like, why do you keep trusting this Jesus guy? Like, everything we thought was important, everything that we held dear, everything that we said, this is what it means to be a Jewish man. You've lost it. Why do you keep trusting this Jesus guy? Because it seems to me like everything in your life is going from bad to worse. You get shipwrecked a bit. You know, you get stoned a bit. 
and not in a recreational way. Like you, 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 you go through these difficult times. You've been, you've been whipped and beaten. You've been rejected. You've been lost. You've, you've had all of these things. Like how do you keep trusting Jesus? What do you think he would say? He would say, I met him. I know him. He's not who you think he is. He is good and he is sovereign. Well, how do you know that? Because your circumstances in life don't seem to show that that is true. What would Paul point to? The crucifixion. He would say, look, I don't know exactly why all these things are happening, but I know what it can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love me. It can't, be, it can't be because he doesn't have a plan for it. Like we've seen this, right? This is, this is the whole premise of this thing, is that Jesus Christ dying on the cross was the worst thing the enemy could do, and yet it is the best thing that could have ever happened. This is what God does. God is constantly taking death and making life. He now reads the Old Testament in a different way where he's probably reading it and seeing it in a whole new light of, man, look at all the things that God continually does that is good. And I wonder if he thinks about his own life and his own experience of who he was before he was Christian and how much God was actually in that to prepare him for when he would be a Christian so that now he could go and be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is able to cling to Jesus because Paul knows that Jesus clings to him. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 62.7.8, On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge, is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. For Paul, there is something about God where he feels that his sovereign goodness is the safest place to be. And he trusts it. Church, do you know this God? Do you know the sovereignly good God? Who despite the things that you go through, despite the things you experience that are hard, God is there. God is behind. God is present. God is with. And God is doing good. Because if you know that God, it gives you power and strength to go through what it is that we face. Second thing is God's sweet approval. You notice that Paul says he's torn between his desire as to, to whether to, to stay here, right, to stay with the, the church and the Christians and do gospel ministry or whether to go. He says, I'm hard-pressed, verse 23. Between the two, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Right, there's this tension in which he's living. That's an interesting tension. Now, for those of you who are a little younger, you don't live with that tension. For those of us who are getting a little bit older, we're starting to live in the tension. It's like, yeah, I mean, like for me, I've got a bit of a clock. I'm like, once they're kind of all married and they're all sort of like, yeah, all right, I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know? But I don't think this is just an age thing for Paul. 
I think this is a no thing. This is a knowledge thing. This is an understanding thing. These are things that I know about God. And one of the things that he knows about God says this in verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, Paul, when Paul uses words, when he's writing to the church, when he uses words, they often have like a, a myriad of meanings. They kind of have a word play on them. And this is another one. Right? Because when we read that, we think he's talking about being delivered from prison, which later he says, I think that's what's going to happen. I think I'm going to get released. But Paul's doing like a double meaning. Paul is speaking in the present, like this will probably work out for my deliverance, but he's really talking about eternal. This word deliverance literally means that he will be justified. That he will be vindicated. So in other words, what he's saying is, I know that whatever is working here is going to get me to the point where I get to meet King Jesus and guess what words I get to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. He knows that whatever happens in this life, there is going to come a day when he's going to meet Jesus and he's going to go, well done, welcome home, son, welcome home. And for him, he longs to know that he is approved by God. So he doesn't care what the world thinks of him. Because he lives for an audience of one. What does God say about you? Young people in the room, this is hard for you. You care about what all of your friends have to say about you. And at some point, you have to, you have to get to this point where you're like, you know what? What you say about me does not matter in comparison to what God says about me. And so I'm going to say no to that thing because I live for the approval of my father. And every adult in this room has had to do that. And that is not easy. But there is a sense in which Paul is saying, I will be delivered. I will be vindicated. Whether by life or death, I will have the sweet approval of God. And for that, I live. So Caesar can come and say death. Caesar can come and say, life, and I don't care. I care what God says. You know what God says? Approved, loved, adored, cherished. Zephaniah talks about that God is singing over us. Some of us in the room, we struggle with shame and guilt. And God wants you to learn that once you have said yes to Jesus... All you have is his approval. You have his vindication. He goes on and says that he, he knows that he will not at all be ashamed. Again, this is a, a play on words. Paul, in, in the book of Romans, often uses quotes from Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 28. And, and in, in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, often when we, we hear the words being put to shame, it, it doesn't just mean like I'm going to be ashamed by people out there. It's actually that God will abandon me or God will reject me. Look at this from Psalm 22, verse 5. It says, To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Psalm 53, 5. They, there they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. This idea of being shamed is being abandoned, being rejected by God. And what he's saying is, that is not what I have. 
I don't have the rejection of God. I don't have the abandonment of God. I have the nearness of God, the presence of God, the approval of God, the grace of God. Oh, this is good news that we have as Christians. Do you have days where you wonder what God thinks about you? Particularly based on your behavior that day, how well you've parented, what you've allowed your eyes to see on screens, how you've spoken to clients and customers and employees, whatever it might be. Do you have days where you've been verbally just off the hook and you've had bad days and you've had bad moments and in those moments you wonder whether you can walk back in and just talk to God and you feel like a hypocrite if you do that. And the Bible says, no, you're not a hypocrite because all of that, if you're a Christian, has been put under Christ and his cross and is done. So Hebrews says, now walk boldly into the throne room of God. On your bad day, how long does it take you before you go and speak to the Lord again? God wants to shrink that gap. There's this interesting story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends out his 72 disciples. He tells them, uh, I don't want you to, uh, to take anything with you. I want you to go. I want you to go into these towns. I'm going to eventually be there. Um, and I just, I just want you to trust me. You're going to go out as sheep like wolves. Uh, it's not going to be easy. People will reject you. And he sends them out. And so as you're reading it, you're like, oh, this sounds brutal. What an assignment. Go out. People are probably not going to accept you. You've got nothing to eat. You've got no money. Trust God. But then they come back and they're like, yo, what's up? This thing was good. That was awesome. So they, in, my, in my view, when I'm reading, I'm like, man, surely there's a bit of trepidation. Surely there's a bit of fear. They come back and they're like just, they're bold. They're like, yo, yo, yo. And Jesus is like, well, tell me about it. They're like, you know what, man? Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And you're reading it, you're like, man, they, they kind of went out and they had these moments. And obviously they, they've had moments where they've com- confronted someone who's demon-possessed. They cast a demon out and they're like, dang. That thing weren't. We didn't, we didn't have any pigs like Jesus, but that was pretty good. And then like someone else was like, well, give me a go. And so I don't know, man, if it was me, I'd be like, man, no, she definitely got a demon, let's go. Or he definitely got a demon, like she's been trying to find people with demons, right? And then they come back and they're like, they're just filled up with boldness and confidence. And what, what is it in? It's in success and it's in power. Right? And, and Jesus, Jesus isn't saying this to crush them, but what he says is, hey, guys, 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 don't let your joy be in success and power. Don't do that. That's great. That's wonderful. That's true. He says, rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. In other words, Christian joy is not found in the accomplishments of what we do. Christian joy is not grounded in in whether we have successful ministry and successful life, depending on how that's defined. It is the fact that Jesus loves you. He went to a cross and died for you. He rose again to new life and he has saved you and he is holding you in the palm of his hands and he approves you and he will bring you home. Rejoice in that because that is secure forever. And this is what Paul is saying. Why can I rejoice? Why, why, why do I follow this Jesus? Because nobody else can give me this. No, nobody, there is nothing that compares to this. So, so to live is Christ and to die is gain. This, this is what it means to be a Christian. 
So as Paul sits in this jail, he is not feeling abandoned. Whatever you're currently going through, if you're a Christian, can I say to you, the enemy wants you to think that God has left you and that you are alone in that mess. And the gospel says, no, you are not. Jesus is near. He is with and he is promising that he has done something in the past for your salvation. He's promising the future. And so he is working this thing out now to bring you home. I don't know whether you have lost your joy in your salvation. I don't know where you are currently with Jesus, but one of my favorite chapters of the whole Bible is Psalm 51. And there is this period in David, King David's life, where he has lost his joy. For him, it was particularly sin that he had not repented of. But Psalm 51.10, he cries out to God and he says, God created me a clean heart. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Nehemiah 8 tells us that the joy of the Lord is a strength. The question is, what is giving us our joy? Where is our joy found? And if you've lost your joy in Jesus Today, I would love to pray with you that God would restore that to you. And thirdly, God's heavenly kingdom. This passage finishes with him exhorting now the church. So verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened by anything by your opponents. This, this phrase here, to live a life worthy of the gospel, we don't fully get it in English. Um, essentially, he's saying, live worthy of your citizenship of heaven. So he's speaking to people who live under a Roman empire where citizenship, Roman citizenship is the highest value to them. And he's saying, listen, Christian, this is not your home. Your citizenship is not Roman heaven. Now live from there here. Live in light of what that means for you. And this is, this is how Paul has lived his life. Paul is like, I'm no longer just a Jew with a Roman dual citizenship. I'm ultimately a Christian. And we do this culturally. Like, so we say, hey, what's your name? Whatever. And one of the first things we ask is, what do you do? And when someone asks us what we do, we always add, I am a teacher. I am a receptionist. I am a builder. I am. And so there's this, in our culture, just like with every other culture, there is this identity attached to activity. It's just our natural language. It's how we speak. When someone asks me what I do, I say, I am a person who talks in front of people. I teach a little bit and, you know, and I'm trying to scatter around so they don't go, oh, personal, oh my gosh, yeah, great, conversation over. <laughs> um, I write. <laughs> I talk. Um, is this not what we do? Right? And so Paul's not saying that that's wrong. Paul's just saying, hey, let's make sure we get the right identity in that first. Before anything, we're citizens of heaven. 
Heaven is secured. All that is in heaven is currently ours. The spiritual blessings Ephesians speaks about are now ours as the Christian. And so Paul is exhorting them to say, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is now your king. Jesus is your king. He is the one who's transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You are now citizens of an eternal heavenly kingdom. Live as though that is true. Live in light of that. What does it mean that we have now been a part of the heavenly kingdom? Well, Paul would say, well, because I'm a a heavenly citizen, I'm now forgiven. So now I'm going to live like I'm forgiven. You know, some of us, we know we're forgiven, but we don't feel we're forgiven. And so we constantly live with regret and shame. And Paul would say, no, 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 that's you living out your citizenship here on earth. In heaven's mind, it's done. It's been covered by snow as far as the east is from the west. That has no defining mark on you. You are forgiven. Walk it. This is wonderful. This is why as church, we can actually be honest with our lives and our past because it doesn't hold us anymore. So yeah, I used to be like that. Yeah, I used to watch that. Yeah, I used to think like that. Yeah, I used to do those things. But that's not me anymore. And you see this over and over and over again in Paul's writing. You once were, you once were, you once were, but that's not you anymore. This is now you. Yeah, I'm bound by chains, but I've been set free, Paul would say. I'm free indeed. I've been made righteous now because I'm a citizen of heaven. So now I live out of Christ's righteousness. I don't just seek to do and obey the law for the sake of trying to earn my way up to God. I seek to know God more and just live out of him. I've been empowered by the Spirit. So now I live victorious knowing that whatever he calls me to, it will be fruitful labor. So if I stay, it's fruitful. It's amazing. I've been given a spiritual family, so now I live as brothers and sisters. So I know that not only am I not alone because God is with me, I know that the saints are praying for me all the time. And I love this about him. I've been given an eternal security, so now I live in peace, knowing that truly Christ is Lord, not Caesar. So I don't fear his words, I don't fear his actions, because I only fear God, and God is my sovereignly good Father who's with me and for me. So I fear nothing. In church, there is so much to being a citizen of heaven. We don't have enough time to explore all that it means. But he says, as you live out that, don't be afraid of anything. And this living, he says, will be this mark to the world that they will see. And it is evidence that the church truly has the king, the sovereign king, as their master and Lord who is with them. So live in this way. Stand firm, strive to unite together, not alone in faith, but together, not fearing the culture around us. Suffering, yes, is going to come, but our good, sovereign one is with us and he has a good, sovereign plan. Cling to him, focus on him, listen to his words, go to him for peace and comfort and live out your calling as a citizen of heaven. And here is the definition of life. To be truly alive is Christ. And to die for the Christian is not something that we're afraid of anymore because it is simply just taking us to experience even more fully what we desire and have presently. 
Church, how do you define life? What's in your journal? What's in that painting in which you are painting? And maybe a more important question is, where is Jesus in that? What part of that does he play? Because Paul says he's through it all. And it's not that you can't have family and spouse and things on that, that picture. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that all of those things are still marked by Jesus. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray in the band together. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.